Uh, hey, this is Ross Payne, Roblin Public Radio, and uh, we're here at Gen Con 2015 doing a panel on education and gaming, uh, the how-tos, ins and outs, and all that good stuff. And with me is Caleb, uh, who uh, put together the idea for the panel, did all the work, so good job there. Uh, and uh, then we have... Introduce yourself. Okay. I'm Steve Radabaugh. Um, I am a computer science teacher and a game designer. Um, I'm Dan McDowell, uh, also an affiliate of Role Playing Public Radio, but professionally speaking, I work with, in the community support program for children with uh, mental health is issues, and I use gaming as a main vehicle for teaching social skills. So, uh, Yeah, I, I, I'm also a teacher. I've been teaching for 10 years or so total, about seven in the high school level. Uh, I've recently got an elective approved called Tabletop Game Design, so I've actually been teaching game design in a high school uh, and I can I'm gonna confidently say this though somebody might I, I have written the longest education based role-playing game campaign in existence uh, no soul left behind where you play uh, teachers that get demonic powers and then use them to pass standardized tests <laughs> um, so the the sort of questionable ethics of like well I can set my super you know I can set my superintendent on fire with my brain He's on fire, so that's bad. But man, we're going to be helped out with that guy gone out of the picture. So, you know, uh, you could play that for 10 sessions. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to come up with this because I think it's uh, the gamification of education uh, using game reinforcement structures and the sort of Skinnerbock behaviorism to teach different skills in schools is like a burgeoning topic in, in uh, education discourse. And then additionally, uh, I think as gamers uh, on our side of things we often neglect the importance of education in doing our hobby when in reality for most rpg books and even many uh you know board games you have to be hyper literate it's not just what do the words mean you have to be literate in any number of skills so uh, i was going to kind of organize this uh panel on the different uses of education games so the things i think we should probably talk about is uh how is education treated in games like in the setting uh, because that's interesting. I can't go around killing wolves in the wood and then learn a different language. Though, I mean, that would be great, but I can't just go murder animals to learn French. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so there, that's interesting, and some games do it in interesting ways. Uh, we can also talk about how you educate people to play a game. Uh, there's no such thing as a 100% rollout when you teach people games. You always get rules wrong. You always have to do so. How do you stagger things out to teach people your games? Especially if you love a game that is particularly complex and difficult to learn and you're trying to teach it to your group uh, who probably didn't do the assigned reading. Um, and then uh, we also want to talk about uh, using games to educate. So like what other skills uh, am I going to be able to teach students children uh, with games, what games are good for dealing with children with various issues uh, and reinforcing certain skills. So uh, we're going to talk about that. So I, I guess we should start about um, the, the meta disconnect in our hobby. So like uh, how, how education is treated in games uh, in the setting, because it's often, a, a, if it's not outright neglected, it's an insanely weird system. So, uh, and, but who does it right? So who wants to talk about that? Um, well, I mean, the, the classical model is what you kind of touched on earlier, is the Dungeons and Dragons approach, which is you get experience points or character points or something like that, and then you, at certain amounts, you can 
then your character improves in every single metric in the game or many metrics you 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 gain skill points you gain attack bonuses you gain access to new spells uh by doing the core activities of the game uh you know killing things and taking their stuff and so you get better at killing things and taking their stuff uh i mean that's sort of the classical model and that's very much derived from um war games where you would have you know everything from novice units to veterans and veteran units would be so they're modeling characters off their military service essentially and that's sort of the standard model that a lot of games do uh other games of course have this approach where you gain character points and then spend them as you want so you gain experience for solving mysteries so now you you decide to invest in martial arts or whatever or stunt driving and uh so it's more it's not gaining everything at once um and so that's the sort of the standard model where you customize your character and you have total control over how well they learn uh, and what they learn, uh, despite what they've been doing. And characters never, there's a term in, like, in the aviation industry, I think, de-skilling, where pilots will get worse as time goes on. Uh, and I think that's something that games never really models. Like, if you don't practice something, you're going to get worse at it. You know, you're going to like, like, oh yeah, how do I land plane? Oh, well, that's not bad time to find that out. Uh, <laughs> when you've been relying on autopilot too much. So um, those are the kind of standard approaches. And, um, yeah. Um, a lot of life can't seen in the past of games, and I don't know if this came from just the way the people I played with when I was learning, especially like the old D&D was like, you can't go out and you get your experience points, but to actually go through the process of learning these skills, your character would get to a town and spend oh, yeah, time there. And kind of, it was very, you know, we kind of hand waved it, but at the same time, you couldn't learn how to speak that new language until you got to town and were able to take a break from adventuring to go do that learning. Yeah. And it's definitely some, some books could incorporate in to kind of build that in, and that some of the DMs can very well just kind of push into the games. Yeah. And uh, actually, in the current iteration of D&D, there is a chart in the DMG that handles that very issue of. Could you speak up? Oh. Okay. Uh, in the current iteration of D&D 5th edition, um, that's actually one of the things that comes out of the core books, is that you, you, as the GM, you have the option to impose that upon your players, is that once you've reached a certain amount of experience points, you still have to go to town, and you still have to go through training, and based on your class and what level you're training, is how much time you actually have to invest into getting your new abilities. Um, also, on that same topic of D and of some, how someone handled that disconnect in D and D, I was in a play group eons ago where the DM's rule was: um, when you level up, you can only, in terms of skills, you can only put skill ranks into skills that you've actually used in the previous level. So if you if you hadn't done any uh, disabled device or search because you were just not there the whole time the dm's like you can't put skill points in that you can put skill points in tumble uh athletics jump climb because that's what you did while crawling through that dungeon for the whole level which made it kind of problematic for characters that are heavy in skill points but still couldn't quite get there so so uh, yeah, well, I think anything you do with education in a game is going to have to rely heavily on abstraction. So, for instance, uh, you know, 
a game solely based on education would have like Dark Souls level difficulty and no one would want to play because it would just be, you know, gut-wrenching. Being a teacher, I don't really think of it as an occupation. It's a class. Uh, when 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 I am in teacher mode, I've rolled teacher class, and that's all my skills are dedicated towards that. Uh, I don't have a lot of time left over. Uh, so you're going to have to abstract some level of it. But what you choose to abstract about education is going to have an outsized effect and, and be very good uh, in world building. So, for instance, uh, you talked about D&D. Hackmaster does the mentor thing always. I kind of like, it, it's hand-waved and not explicit, but I really like in Call of Cthulhu how failure is the state that leads you to get getting better. So if you roll, if you use a skill in the game, you have to roll at the end of the game and fail it, uh, and you get to try and fail it every time you failed it in the game, or in uh, Dungeon World, every time you fail a roll, you get an experience point, and that makes sense, because like, man, I really wish I knew that language that told me how to defeat that horrible tentacled monster. Uh, I'm going to go study up now that I, you know, you know, survived that somehow. Uh, so that makes sense in that abstracting uh, Eclipse Phase uh, and a game I'm currently designing called Red Markets. Um, I very much focus on the financial uh, necessities of education because, like, even if you are a complete autodidact, there are an enormous amount of logistical things that are required to do that. You got to have property so you can get a library card. You got to have an ability to get there. You got to have an ability to have the lights on so you can read it. You have to have nutrition enough that you can pay attention. Like, there's an enormous cascading infrastructure behind anything you do and then especially when you get into upper levels of education you're talking about colleges <laughs> it's a yeah it's it is you get what you pay for kind of stuff uh so that's another way to abstract it and like if my setting has a character improvement and i'm educating my characters financially that is a very different flavor of world than a setting that is doing it through failure or just finding nice people that are willing to talk to you uh, are, are things of that level um and another thing with like using your education in your game not just hand waving it it's an it's a great way to get your characters invested in something any social problem that exists in any world is going to have an outsized and extreme effect on the children of that world so like if the gang in town is up to no good yeah, all right, maybe we'll do it if somebody hires us, whatever. Take your players to the school of the neighborhood where that gang controls, you know, the den of scum and villainy and see what's happening to the kids, and they're going to be sharpening swords inside of the minute, like, just like, oh, I'm going to get these guys. Like, yeah, uh, because, yeah, it's, it's you know, if you see... Uh, I love children and hate parents. Yes. As a teach, I hate hate parents and it's not like I think all parents are bad not by any means but the good parents I never see and the parents I need to see duck me like I'm the tax man and some of them are monsters like uh, I, I said in one meeting I think our school needs to hire a punisher to go door to door sometimes for the district because like it's just some, it's like horrific and if you want to motivate characters to do stuff in your game and help actually help the NPCs and do things for moral reasons rather than like, oh, those goblins have money, stab. Like, uh, that is that is one way to do that. Get them invested in that community. So like, um, my game, No Soul Left Behind, you have these superpowers and in the world of better angels, which the system is for, um, the reason Silver Age villains do stupid things like use their laser guns to rob banks to buy more laser guns is because all of their superpowers come from demons. 
So the demon in their head is saying, flay them all alive! And the guy's like, well, I really like being able to shoot lasers out of my eyes, but I don't want to flay people alive. What if I carved my name in the moon? And he's like, all right, I guess. It's better than nothing. And so the whole game's a negotiation with your demon on how to do those things. So in No Soul Left Behind, the basic function is like, yes, you become a super-powered, uh, super-villainous person with a demonic uh, possession, but you get demonically possessed at this charter school where you work that is, like, very disadvantaged. So, like, man, I could brainwash all my kids into doing the assigned reading every night and they're going to get SATs. Like, their noses might bleed a little bit and they might lose free will, but, I mean, eventually they won't have me in a class and it'll all equal out once they go to, you know, Ivy League schools. Like, uh, so you're constantly tortured with this ethical, like, I could do a really good thing with this really awful tool and, and that and and that's the crux of the whole campaign is that like I, I can solve all the problems of American education with Satan um, <laughs> yeah sometimes Satan's better than some of those problems sometimes not like where do I make that judgment line and so my characters don't have to do a lot of stuff for money in that campaign but it is very much about like what is my character's values what do I think is real and and that's that's a great way to use uh, education in games in the setting um, but another thing uh, we can do is that we really need to focus on how do you teach people to play games uh, because there is a, there is an education process when you bring someone to a table for a board game or a card game or an RPG they've not played before and um, gamers are somewhat emphasis for being terrible at this yeah. uh, like what do you mean you don't get resistance tables oh yeah, like, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, how, how, how are the best ways do you guys teach, uh, teach games at your table to people who are new? Uh, when I go about teaching games, I kind of, well, I've been doing it a lot this weekend because I'm running my first com games game. Um, but I'm running Monsters and Other Childish Things for Art Dream. And, you know, the system itself is, seems very simple, but it, there's a bit of a learning curve. Once players get it, they're fine, but getting them to that point is a little difficult. So the best way i found to handle that is that I've started every game with just kind of the info dump on the rules, and then as I've been playing my scenario through this weekend, I've been tweaking it and changing it, scaling it down to be less about I'm wanting to challenge you uh, numerically and systematically. It's just the, you know what, I'm going to show you how combat works. I'm going to show you how social interaction works. And that's kind of what it's been. And that's kind of what you need to do, is that you info dump them on the rules and then you follow through by giving them examples and letting them make their own connections, letting them ask questions, having that patience for them, as opposed to like sitting down from the get-go and just saying, alright, I hope you guys all did the assigned reading, we're taking on the the level 20 boss in D&D, so good job, I hope you read what your spells do. Um, I mean, thing is, yeah, role-playing games are pretty terrible at teaching people how to actually play them, uh, historically speaking, because it's this bit, you, you get a book that's like a textbook. I mean, they're usually hardcover, they're usually a few hundred pages long, and there's a lot of weird words in them, like dexterity and, you know, uh, constitution, you know. Uh, I thought that was a document, you know. And uh, because game designers assume that all gamers are like them, that they're usually autodidactic, that they're self-motivated to learn and to just stubborn enough, like, I will figure you out, you know, uh, no matter what. And 
it's uh, kind of a hard uh, process. Um, but if you look at, like, actually, I know a lot of people are like, oh, video games, ugh, but um, video games also have the same problem in that, like, people get the game and then they never read the manual. They, they just start playing. And so video games have to teach players how to play them as the game is going on. Otherwise, they're not going to like the game. And so what I've done, uh, like, a little of what Dan was doing is to do tutorial adventures where you like introduce one game element at a time. Like I've done a, a tutorial adventure for Eclipse Phase, which uh, the player is a very complex science fiction game with a lot of transhuman concepts in it and uh, a lot of advanced technology. And so like I would do an encounter that focuses on one element of the setting. Like here's the their virtual reality, uh, and here's how this works, and here's how computer hacking works. Oh, oh, now there's a combat section. And then, oh, look, your character blows up, but you have a backup of your brain, so you can be restored. And so like each, so that's the kind of thing I do. I sort of model my other adventures on if I'm trying to explain a new setting uh, or system is that, hey, there's one particular thing at a time just let's focus on this and then we'll focus on this and then we'll focus on this and then that's it uh and so i think you have to be kind of sort of modular in that approach if you're trying to teach a new game it's like don't like try to explain everything at once like try and break it down to component parts and have them lead into one another uh narratively and thematically if that makes sense um so i've been spending a lot of this weekend i'm demoing a game Next ball. So I was spending a lot of time this weekend teaching people enough about my game to make them want to buy it. Is this Fable? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, this is my Fable Fairies playing dodgeball game. Um, so I was spending a lot of time. It has to be really quick, you know, just teach. And I've learned is I really need to start out by telling people what their objective is, and you kind of start with that objective. Here's what you're trying. You're trying to build up a dodgeball big enough to throw it at your opponent. Okay. Now that you understand that, you can understand you know all the different aspects that are going into it. I kind of take it step by step, and you know, and because it's a demo game, I'm like, okay, this round you're probably going to want to do this, and then on this round you're probably going to do this, and kind of you know really held their hands through it, and I kind of skip, and I tell whenever I skip stuff, I tell them, okay, we're skipping this part, we're skipping rolling dice, see who goes first, because it's just easier if you just go first here, for this game. Normally you would do that, and so it's right. like, just kind of a lot of very step by step, one piece at a time, but with that objective in the front, so that they get that as they're going. Um, I spent a lot of time this weekend running fate games and I, my fate games are all on the books so I tend to get a lot of people who are like I've heard about this fate thing I don't know much about it I want to see what it's like or I've read the rule books and I don't get it and that's kind of my target audience for that so I've been spending a lot of time teaching people just who intellectually they understand the rules but they don't see how it works and play. And so kind of really working with them and showing them how that works. And it's just been, I don't dump the rules ahead of time because a lot of them have read those rules. I just can't take it one step at a time. Okay, we're going to fill in aspects. Here what your aspects kind of look like. Here's the step, you know, and just kind of step through it piece by piece. It's as if you're an educator and you know how to scaffold things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so scaffolding is hugely important. And I think that's uh, a failure to scaffold is where the infamy of, uh, you know, role-playing games comes. <laughs> like, uh, you got to really tamp down your grognard and neckbeard tendencies if, like, you're not doing it right. Like, uh, yeah, you don't, you don't want to do that because, like, um, 
One thing I say is that like the purpose of a national education system is to have a cultural touchstone. And while our education systems were no doubt wildly different, there are a number of structures that get placed every single year to try and standardize this so that we at least have that commonality, which is one of the things about using education in your setting you have a baseline for world building because everyone experiences, everyone knows the basic structure of school because we all went through it at some point. But another thing is like few things inspire hate more than a bad educational experience. Like think about it ontologically. The, the idea of hating reading is completely insane. Like I saw a television show once I didn't like, so I threw it out the window. And I will never look at moving pictures again. Like, uh, like, oh man, I don't like rap music, so I just jammed an ice pick in my ear. Never, never will I listen to any sound waves for the rest of my life. But that's a kid who hates reading because the frustration of it not coming easily can be compounded with a bad educational practice and you get that sort of fanaticism. And if you're trying to teach someone a game, that's why it's so important scandal because uh, you will get the reverse. It will not be, oh well, uh, we tried that one time, it didn't really work, I'll try it again. It will be the system's crap, the writer's an idiot, I'll never crack this book in my life, like, because that's just a very natural human reaction to failed educational experiences. Uh, so you gotta break it down and you gotta tamp down your perfectionism and just do it a phase at a time. So uh, again, with that, this campaign book I wrote in the Charter High School, uh, Better Angels is an established system, but it's weird, it's great but it does a lot of stuff that other role-playing games don't do. Like every action, even physical actions, has a moral component. Like punching someone is bad, whereas running away is good. Like everything is you know, quantified along these moral lines and it's got weird rules for making your own devices which change powers and ways to do superpowers and, the, and this whole lore on how you get infested with the demon. And there's a lot of stuff in there that if you're not an experienced gamer, you don't know. So um, in the playtest of it, uh, I was short on people, so one of the people I got to play with me was uh, Sarah, my girlfriend, because, uh, you know, dedication and love. So it was the first role-playing game ever, so we were really kind of stuck. So what I did in the campaign is each adventure, adventure linearly focuses on one aspect of the setting. So the first adventure, you don't even have powers, which means that your character sheet sucks and you fails everything, but it's kind of an educational satire, so I'm okay with that. You go, you go through a whole session just failing and sucking at everything, and then there's a clear part where it gives you your powers, it explains how you got those powers in the setting, how you maintain those powers, and what that means. That's the whole reason that scenario. And then we get to the second adventure. So now you have powers and you know how they work. Uh, now uh, other people get powers too and they're building devilish devices the things that give them more powers so the whole scenario is about devilish devices how you might build your own one day how you might go on uh, when angels come in they have their own angelic code of conduct and all you know you and by the end of the session you are a experienced better angels player that can do anything that the system allows you to do but the mistake would have been here's better angels do your homework Session one, here we go. Like that would be that would have been a really bad idea. Uh, so you got it. You got to break it down. Uh, Eclipse Phase is a pretty complex system, yeah. but it's like one of the most favorite I've ever played. I, I love those guys. And uh, Ross was really smart in that uh, he did he did he literally called it a tutorial adventure. We just kind of tried it out, 
and, and we we were not were freaking out about the parts of the rules. I think it was like session ten before we got the rules down. We're gonna like fray wrong forever. Some say we haven't got them right to this day. <laughs> yeah, uh. yeah, and we have this like two year posting time, so like people are just raving in the comments about all the stuff you do wrong. But like you can't get hung up on that because the point is not to get it perfect. The point is to move towards perfect. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, I'm kind of curious about the timing and how long this typically takes. And just to give you some context, I manage an AmeriCorps program within an inner city school in Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. Louisiana. Um, and my core members don't really have much time to really go in depth with a lot of games. I want them to incorporate more games like Word on the Street or like a role-playing thing. Um, but they don't have too much time with the students. Um, that could extend into like a nice big game. Mm -hmm. um, so do you have any suggestions on how to make, you know, a warm up or an anticipatory set or something like that? Incorporate role playing or some sort of board game or card game and gets the kids engaged for the entire intervention that they do. Uh, I actually have an example of something like that. Um, when I did some work in the group home setting uh, for an activity for the kids when they're all in their milieu group, uh, we had a box set of apples to apples. You know, we don't really have a whole lot of time to get into a whole game of that, but you can spend some time together in like 10, 15 minutes tops of just handing out a fistful of cards to each of the kids and then just going and then de delegating one to be the card czar. It's like, okay, everyone give Sally the card that you think matches this word, and then she goes through it and she decides it. And that helped get, that can help stimulate thinking. And so it's kind of like those things is where, you know, you sit down with those types of card games, not with the idea of completing the game, but just doing the exercise of a round to get the brain going. So that's, is that kind of online with what you're thinking about? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's an excellent segue. So, like, uh, how do you use games to teach other things than games? Uh, and there are any there are any number of ways to do it. So uh, we can just talk about that generally. Uh, I think, and you're going to have a few major hurdles. There's a reason it's not already in educational policy already. So. Uh, one of the big hurdles is time, both for the students and yourself. Uh, so the students are going to have uh, a limited amount of time before they might move classes in the upper levels kind of stuff, things of that nature. So the time component limits what you can do. So you're not going to have a and d game. It's going to be a mini game of some kind. And you can still do a ton with that, but that, that's one of the concerns. Um, the other thing is uh, money. That's always a problem, especially if it's a board game or a card game, which is often the best place to start. Um, you have to deal with social stigma. I use RPGs in my class every day. I, I, we role play constantly. I never say the word RPG. I never compare it to D&D. Kids are, teenagers are too geared toward what does everybody think of me. They'll, we, they will get into it if I don't name it. The second I, I, I attach the nerd stigma to it, they just flee it back into their apathy uh, so you got to deal with that and then on the same side you have to deal with social skills so the social skills required for something like an RPG even more so than a board game or a card game are just extreme like you and we've all been in games with people who are not on that level where they need to be for social skills so that's something you might have to educate explicitly uh, and then I think your last hurdle is that 
RPGs are not just literacy for the most part. They are hyper-literacy. Uh, so that's a, a, a hyper-liter is a term that Douglas Wolk uses in reading comics to talk about comic books. It's like four-color superhero comics. You don't just need to know how to read the words. You need to know how to go from left to right or right to left if it's Japanese. Uh, you need to know the structure of the panels. You need to know the board bubble on top is comes before the word bubble on bottom you need to know that the cloudy word bubbles are thoughts and not actual speech like all of these things that no one is educating you about in addition superhero comics you need to know the backlog of 50 or 60 years of history of illusion so he's like you're not to read a superhero comic you have to work like it's not just i am reading texts communicating me it is i have to Un, I have to unpack the text like a puzzle. And that is RPG writing. It's this bastardized fusion of fiction, nonfiction, and tech writing uh, with pictures and graphs and visual aids and handouts. And if it's an addition, illusions and uh, social war that might be going on because of it, like, yeah, that's a hyper literate text. So you really have to scaffold that kind of stuff. But there are ways to get over that, and I've done that before in the class. So, like, um, what skills do you guys think uh, RPGs and board games and card games can be used to teach? And I know you've been using some of the therapeutic models and, mm -hmm. and, and things of that nature, so any anecdotes or ideas you guys have about that? Um, well, I know one way that uh, games are used to teach, and that's, uh, war games are used to teach history, uh, and obviously strategy. I know the military uses a lot of war gaming to like, here's, you know, set up the board, here's the pieces, here's how this army worked, here's how this army worked, see if you can do better, better at Gettysburg or something like that. Uh, because, you know, you especially in the more complex war games, you, you have multiple not just you know general colonels worry about tactics generals worry worry about logistics so you can try and you know modeling a complex situation so that you can understand so the student can understand what's going on you know it's easy to say well these guys won and these guys lost but like why did they lose uh, and that that can be more uh, illustrative uh, so Morgan yeah so history can definitely be taught through uh, that kind of process um, so for teaching computer science, I actually use a board game, Robot Turtles, something like Kickstarter oh, yeah. a while ago, and I use it as like, for kids who have never touched programming before in their life, and they're in high school, and I say, here, here's this board game that a five-year-old can play, um, <laughs> but you're learning, and they kind of see that basic, and they play this game, and I'm like, okay, that's programming, that's what we're doing, we're just using words, and weird sentences, and semicolons instead of cards, and it, it helps them get that kind of on a high, different level of what they're doing before they start writing in code. So it's a great, I use it as like an introductory or sometimes if it's like a Friday where half the school's gone, then hey, we'll play Robot Turtles and um, it's something for them to do. But it, it, it's a great like introductory level for me. Um, I've used games in different capacities. Um, I actually got my start uh, in actually incorporating games into what I do professionally. Uh, because our program is structured in the, such a way that you have a person that's got at least a bachelor's level amount of experience or going into this home, this child has a diagnosed disorder and the parents are struggling. Whether it's the parents are struggling managing them in the home, the parents are struggling cooperating with the school, parents are struggling getting these kids to appointments, whatever. There's a struggle here, we're coming in to help. A lot of that ends up turning into things like if they're struggling in the home. Well, how does that struggle in the home manifest? Well, you have one child who has this diagnosis and then you have this one child who's considered perfect by the parents. And so that creates conflict between the two of them and they never get along. 
So how do you resolve that? Actually, the game I found that helps resolve that a lot when you've got two siblings that won't get along is Settlers of Catan. You sit down with Settlers of Catan, you get into it, I would go into it as the worker, I would get mom or dad involved, and it's like, you and I are going to bend over backwards to help each other out, to advance ourselves in the game. And we are going to do fair trades with the kids, and we will let them decide how they treat each other. The kids will quit, both kids will learn eventually especially after they lose once or twice, and it's like, why can't I win? This is stupid. It's like, well, because you won't trade with your sister. You will not share. That's why you don't win. Um, and then in terms, and so that model is kind of advanced to other things, like you could use uh, a game of Uno. It's like, well, anytime you play a red card, you have to talk to me about something that made you mad this week. Uh, anytime you play a good blue card, something that made you sad. Anytime you play yellow, something that makes you scared. Anytime you play a green, something that made you happy. I mean, eventually they'll run out of things to talk about, but you get them used to that idea of talking about their feelings, which is very important for some of these kids. Sometimes it's important for mom and dad to do it too. <laughs> um, and then the last piece I'm going to talk about briefly, uh, I have started using Fate Accelerated with some of my kids one-on-one -on -one that have some social dynamic struggles. I have one client who has been put on homebound schooling because of their acting out behavior. And they've been on homebound schooling for a number of months. This particular child is very intelligent, almost to the point where they see themselves as superior to other people. And they don't get to interact with many kids their own age anymore because he, uh, this kid is the only one of their age in the home and mom's trying to balance staying at home all day to try to help supplement with homeschooling while still trying to work and provide from the home. The other kids are at school, etc., etc. So here's the character this kid made in Fate Accelerated. This character is a roguelike thief in a Victorian era setting. However, this kid is the only one that has gunpowder and can use a gunpowder pistol. And the city that this client is living in, or this client's character is living in, is an island city-state. And the goal is to beg, borrow, make enough money to buy a ship and leave. Pretty telling as to what this particular kiddo is feeling. I've had another kid that's very big into Roman, Roman uh, history and Roman military history, uh, made themselves a Roman legionnaire but because they wanted it to be cooler, made it steampunk Rome. So he's got these steampunk gauntlets that enhance the character's strength. Uh, was dealing with an issue of barbarian tribes coming along the end, he, being a respected warrior, standing in the army, is getting brought in on some of the planning meetings. None of the other generals can get along. What are you gonna do to resolve it? And this is a kid that after months and months of finally getting them to tone down their aggression, is just like, well, I could use my gauntlets and I could just beat people up until they agree with me, but that's really not going to help. Fantastic. Thank you. So those are kind of the those are how I have been using games to help coach social skills, social dynamics, social interactions, while also getting some very useful information that I can take back to psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists saying, this is what this kid told me through our game today. Read this note, let me know what you think. So This presumes the first example with Catan 
this presumes that the kids are both willing to play games, but siblings, in my experience, are so different, the same genetic inheritance, and one may be willing to do it and the other not. So what do you do in a case like that? Uh, I haven't had to struggle with that a whole lot because the way the the way it happens is that this stranger, this relative, most of my most of my families are very poor, lower social economic status. You have this person that's coming in relatively well dressed, speaks in calm, happy tones most of the time, and for and for one kid in this home, I'm coming in to talk with you. I'm giving you all of this individual one on one attention. And so then this other sibling starts going, But what about me? But what about me? And so you you just for that particular purpose, there's you get that preclusion taken care of by the fact that the child will eventually be interested in who you are and what you're doing to begin with. Because if you're if I'm playing a lot of one-on-one -on -one games with my client, then the sibling's going to want a piece of that too. If they are also feeling starved for attention, which a lot of these kids in this particular dynamic are, because even though the this kid is considered perfect and is favored in some ways, they're still not getting what they would feel is their fair share of the attention because their brother or sister is getting kicked out of school, their brother or sister is causing fights, their brother or sister is causing mom or dad to run ragged to take them to appointments. So there's that dynamic as well. So it's all about creating, it's, I, I, I haven't had to deal with that particular issue, but then there will be times that they're just like, I don't need attention from you today, and so my participation is voluntary, so I'm gonna go play with my own toys. But, you know, when you, for me, it's a matter of finding those moments, jumping on them, and then not letting go until they get mad at me and not want to play anymore, which is fine because I've already taught the lesson. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think in general there are some basic rules for using education, uh, games in education. So, like, uh, I would not jump straight into RPGs. No, uh, no So, no, for no, example, no. like, I think that one-on-one -on -one thing is perfect, but, like, just letting them go on an RPG... Uh, I taught a tabletop game design class, um, two of which the students were on the Asperger's autism spectrum, and they, they don't handle that kind of stuff well right out of the gate. So it's also very good to start with like things that are like card games, board games. Um, in addition, I would very much focus on cooperative, because uh, that's going to be the social skills kind of thing. Also, if you're trying to sell this to an administrator, you say it teaches social skills and it, it vocabulary 21st century literacy whatever the f that means <laughs> um like you buzzword the heck out of them until they buy it um but yeah it does teach those things but you know uh you you do have to doll it up in education language so um yeah focus very much on cooperative things like that if you do do competition i find it very good if you start with the competition with competition that is entirely arbitrary so has anybody ever played we didn't play test this at all yeah that's the great that's the greatest place to start with competition kind of stuff like it's not strategy it's not i'm smarter than you it's not deception based it's oh i have a banana and that beats your space rock because <laughs> reasons and like the games are like five seconds long and they are competing there are winners and losers but they're having fun and that's your touchstone that's what you go back to if you start introducing more competitive games uh because the thing about competitive games that is their value is that they encourage critical thinking very much. Uh, that's why you can't leave them out altogether. But you do not want to start with that because their social skills probably aren't there. Um, so in this uh, tabletop game design class, we started with like pandemic. Um, 
I actually, the first RPG I let him play was not uh, Fate. Well, I tried Fate, but it was going disastrous, and I cut it off. Uh, because that is actually requires a lot more, because so much in Fate is unwritten. Uh, I think a great thing to start is, like, Dungeon World. It's uh, an apocalypse world hack for, like, D&D, &D, but everyone's familiar with the basic story structure, and your character sheet is just a sushi menu. I can do this now, and it says exactly what you can do. You don't have to look it up in a book. The dice is very simple. Um, and then, because you're doing, uh, like, your very basic story structure that almost everyone is familiar with, so they've got the background knowledge, uh, Dungeon World doesn't allow anybody to play the same class. So everyone gets spotlight time, they cooperate well on it, the rogue can do a thing that the paladin can't do, can do, and then you always get rewarded for trying. If you fail a role in Dungeon World, you get XP. Like, that is a fantastic thing to introduce a role-playing game to people, stuff like that. Uh, whereas Fate is good, and I would definitely do Fate, like, one-on-one, -on -one, but if you open everybody up to, like, having to uh, compel and invoke aspects and that kind of stuff, as simple as it seems, there's a lot of that. And Fate is a game written for people who are tired of other RPG systems. <laughs> Fate is not the first RPG system for a lot of people for those reasons, because it requires so much uh, interpersonal skill in order to do those kind of things. It's very much an acting kind of thing. Um, it's great for teaching theater. So uh, RPGs rely on nothing if not yes and and yes but, but no no's. Uh, so that, like, especially if, if I was teaching theater, we do drama system every day. The the uh, petitioner and the grantor and those sort of like hill folk. Yeah, yeah, hill folk. Yeah, sorry, that's drama systems. The Robin Law system that runs hill folk. Um, but yeah, if I if I taught theater at all, that would be fantastic. Um, so what have I used uh, to be specific? I used uh, Mark Truman's uh, "The Plays of the Thing" to review for our Macbeth test. Uh, what it basically is is that one person plays the bard, whoever is putting on the play, and it starts off as the actual play you're doing. So we were doing Macbeth. But the thing is, the characters are playing two characters. They're playing whatever character they have in the story, and they're playing an actor that wants more stage time. So there's a bid command. There's a bid mechanic. Is like, uh, I don't. Uh, yeah, I. I don't think. Uh, I don't think the king's dead. He survived. And like they walk out on stage, and you have to improv it. Uh, we played it, and Macbeth ended up in a bouncy castle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bouncy castle upon Iverness. You know. Uh, yeah, Dunsinane. Uh, you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it. It gets ridiculous, but they are reviewing what happened in the play by deviating from it. Like, you can't do the game unless you know the exact plot so you can deviate it from it and be ridiculous. So it's sort of a negative review. Um, I start off by teaching formal rhetoric, but what I do is I do a basic survivor assignment. You've ever seen one of these? Like, you got ten people on a boat, only five can stay, that kind of stuff. I do a, I do a fallout survivor assignment where, like, you guys are in charge of this bunker that has to last for hundreds of years. It's the apocalypse. Ten people are at the door. This is all you know about them. And I give paragraphs descriptions, so like there's no right or wrong answer. Like uh, the botanist can't breed because she's you know become infertile. Like the, the soldier, uh, uh, well it used to be, he was discharged for don't ask, don't tell, so he's not going to breed. And the, one kid has a bunch of supplies, but he might be irradiated and make other people say. So there's like good and bad for everything. So I have them, I have them write their arguments for the five they pick uh, at the beginning of class. And then I'm like, all right, I lied. You're not in charge of the bunker. You and a bunch of other people are in charge of the bunker. If you manage to have humanity survive, you will be the single most important historical figures in the history of mankind. So you better have justification as to what you do, and you better be unanimous. 
you're going to have to defend leaving people to die. So I make it a game. You picked five people. For every person that's on your original list that gets on the group list, I give you one point. If you compromise, you lose a point. It's all extra credit. Your grade's not dependent on it. But the more you can get people to acquiesce to what you want, the more points you get. Now, it's five points. If you teach, that's, it's not... It's not 0.2% of what they're going to get in the semester. It's it's entirely useless. Like, uh, but they fight like dogs for it. Um, and I'll, and what I do is I just record the conversations, and then the next day we come in and I, I pick stuff out, and I'm just like, all right, we're going to learn about formal rhetoric today. So, Stephen, when you said I have over 40 hours logged in Fallout 3, I know all about fictional post-apocalyptic scenarios. You guys should listen to me. Congrats, Stephen. You just did an ethos appeal. Or when you said Sergeant Baker has all these commands and all this, oh, you're you're depending upon Sergeant Baker's previous experience and his authority. That's an ethos appeal. When you said so and so can't do this, well, that's a fact. You know that as a fact. That's a logos appeal. Uh, so we can't enlist Sergeant Baker because he got he is a homosexual and will not breed. Uh, when Cindy called you a racist monster for throwing Sergeant Baker out due to his sexual orientation, that's a pathos appeal. You're trying to manipulate my emotions so I go along with what you've done. Uh, and, that's, and that's the establishment. I'm like, you all know how to do this. Like, everyone knows how to do this already. You just don't know what the names are, and you don't know how the names affect what you're doing. Uh, I also do a lot for re review. There's a vocabulary website I'm trying to get my school to buy called Meme Bean that uh, self-tests kids for vocabulary stores, maintains their own vocabulary lists, and then it has periodic review structures that are automated on the computer. So like every time you get back on for another session, it reviews the words you already learned, and it doesn't review them the same way. So some are like morpheme, like, you know, prefix, suffix, kind of uh, SAT vocabulary stuff. Sometimes it's use it correctly in a sentence. Sometimes it's just repeat the definition. Sometimes it's spell it. But if you miss it, it takes you back to the words page, which has audio and video clips, memory hooks, and all kinds of stuff. And that's the thing. If I taught vocabulary like I was supposed to, I would do nothing else. Because it's so differentiated. You're boring half the class, or the, are, are above the level of the rest. But this thing maintains the vocabularies for me and, and does periodic structures for me. And so it's a fantastic review thing. We, like, and kids look forward to Meme Bean Day. Like, we get to go in the computer lab and just mess around in this game. They can have contests, and it keeps stats for me. So anytime I, my administrator's like, you just let them play on the computer, I show them graphs and numbers. And, you know, that's administrator kryptonite. And then it's, oh. And then I get to go back and do my job. Uh, yes? Do you, um, do you do centers or have center structures within your classroom? Uh, occasionally, it depends on what we're doing in the day. I teach a lot of AP and dual credit stuff. Uh, when I, 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 I've taught junior high as well, so I utilize it more with younger kids. But if we're doing like Beowulf, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, it's real hard to do some of this stuff. Uh, I have done them before, and that's a, that's another great way to do it. Yeah. Uh, I'm within the elementary school, mm -hmm. school setting, and this charter school uses centers like it's no tomorrow. So I just was curious to use games. Like, and like younger kids, if you're doing funny games, like we didn't play test at all, uh, that's still, there's uh, there's surprisingly a lot of text on those cards. Yeah. You're just reinforcing literacy. Uh, and then if you're doing something like simple, like love letter, like love letter is so easy to learn, but so deep strategically. Like, oh, it's so easy to learn. You get that little card, tells you what everything does. It, you can get them up and playing in five minutes, and they will keep, like, I, I did this tabletop game design class. It was eight hours a day for a month. It was a full 
two block tabletop kind of design class and I demanded to be that way because I'm not going to do one block where we just learn what a game is because these kids hadn't played anything before uh, but then they designed their own they came up with cool stuff but they played Love Letter constantly it was the first game I told, taught them and they were playing it until the last day of class because you just it's great for critical thinking skills stuff like that um, yeah so I'm rambling a lot. I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so questions you guys have uh, that anything we can do to answer that? Yeah. Do you have much experience with kids accepting the rules of the game and then throwing out the goal of the game and causing problems? Uh, that and and reverse. So like one of the biggest breakthroughs I had with the Asperger's kids, we talked about. Uh, I didn't allow them to use the word fun which is another panel, because I hate that word. It's so useless. It's like flow in a creative writing workshop. It just indicates you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so we read the eight types of fun, and we used that to like, okay, what type of fun is your game going for? Are you going for abdignation, narrativist, challenge, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we also talked about bad gaming behavior, so we talked about rules lawyering. And my Asperger's kid had a big breakthrough, because there is no rules lawyer like an Asperger's child. Uh, but... After a few games that he just shut down by, you know, going out like that, I could point out, because I knew the game better than he did, is like, all right, you argued the rules here, you didn't argue it here, but it helped you here and it didn't help you there. Like, and, and he had a huge superiority complex because he's super, he's super smart. And I'm not, I'm not saying like, it, I'm like, buddy, it's not like you're not smart, you are but you're also self-interested. Like, your ability to argue the rules does not make you intellectually superior to somebody. That's a, that's a blind spot you have. Like, it's not like you get to quit because you're smarter than the kids now. You didn't hit a wall, things like that. Um, so, so yeah, I have had stuff like that. And, um, and I did have a couple gifted kids in there, and I just threw the rules books. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you, you're bored by, you know, the YA crap we have in the library. I don't blame you. Read 400 pages of this and try and figure out how <laughs> initiative works. And that, yeah, like, yeah, it's really a bone they can kind of chew on. So, uh, other questions? Uh, yeah, I was a teaching assistant in a foreign, like, for foreign language. And, I, like, just kind of specifically, I would try and do group activities. And when I was trying to make, like, group activity games, cooperative group games, there would kind of be a problem where, there were some kids who were just really, really good, and other kids who were really bad, and uh, the kids who just were, weren't as quick to act, acquire the skills would just pass everything to the gifted kid and let them do everything. Um, I would delineate roles. So uh, have you ever done lit circles? Like you have a reader, there's illuminator, so they have to draw something from the text, and then there's like a adjudicator who like monitors the discussion, and then there's the I don't know, like referencer or something who actually finds direct quotations, stuff like that, and it makes group work codified because I know which kid had which role and what which role requires, and you switch so nobody does it the one that nobody just draws pictures for the entire book. Uh, so I would do something like you read the rules. Yeah, I brought Dead of Winter in to show them, and they were desperate to play it. 
And so I removed the mature cards. I'm like, here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, Plaid Hat has these fantastic YouTube initiatives. So I'm like, you're gonna teach this game to yourself. So I'm like, you're gonna look at the rules list. You're gonna you're gonna pause and play the recording when people need to stop. You're going to be Vanna White. So if they say a figure, you show it to everybody, and you know, everyone physically manipulates it. So everyone had a different role for learning the game. And what I did is I just put it on the projector. I'm like, all right, you got four hours to tell me how to play Dead of Winter. That's your grade for the day. Teach yourself. So like, uh, they were like nine through twelve, uh, and I was, you know, of course, editing the game so they weren't getting the creepier sex-related cards and stuff like that. But all of them watched The Walking Dead. They all know zombie stuff. So they they loved that game, and because I think they loved it because they did it, not because I told them how to do it. Yeah. I was uh, using games, and I divided a class up into groups. And I noticed what he did, that one of them would do the work, we were working on computers, and the other ones would not. The next time what I did is by grades, I divided them up into groups so that they're the equal. And the weakest student in each group had were the, was the only person that could put their fingers on the keys. So all the information had to at least flow through them so that they, they could do it. So in your case, you could maybe take the weakest student and you know have some activity and have all the information go through that student so they make sure they understand it and that's yeah yeah define roles yeah so sub subdivide that's yeah that's great advice um I, do, do you talk about video games with your kids i do um don't they just like love you for being the teacher <laughs> that can talk about video games that, that's the case with me so yeah, like yeah. well it helps because like i have a game on ios and i have students who play it and they tell me it's amazing. I don't know if they tell me that because I'm a teacher or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it helps because when I'm, especially when I'm doing, talking about games, programming and talking about game stuff, it's like, okay, this is an if button. So if, if you press the A button, Mario jumps. I use, I use video game as examples all the time. I, I go back to Mario a lot and like the things that every kid, even if they're not a gamer, they'll know what it is. Um, and Flappy Bird, we, I make Flappy Bird clones every semester, because yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's easy. Yeah. And I can make a Flappy Bird game in an hour, but, and so it, it's a good like sample because all the kids have played Flappy Birds. Um, so yeah, I I bring it up with examples a lot. We don't play it a lot, but and I'll have them make it. Um, yeah, it just makes me so sad when teachers are gamers and they play video games and they do not mention their video games in class because it's non-academic, because you're just, you're just like throwing this fantastic tool away. Like, more kids are familiar with video games now than with any movie you've ever seen. Like, the amount of kids I have who haven't seen, like, Star Wars, are just like, seminal works of film, is just growing every single year. And this year will be my first year where I have kids who have no ability to recollect 9-11. I can't refer to the political cultural touchdowns. I can't refer to literary touchdowns because that's what I'm there for. I can't refer to the film and media and TV because half my kids don't even get cable anymore. Uh, but video games is a touchstone that I have and I can teach history with it through Assassin's Creed. I can refer all kinds of stuff. And when they get into game design, if you start teaching them to be designers themselves and they start thinking about from design elements, you get really interested in things. So I have a couple of kids in that class who are obsessed with Dark Souls. They love it. And then they're making this game where, like, it's just power fantasy. You have a billion things, and you can do anything you want, and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, that doesn't seem like your kind of game, guys. And they're like, what? It's like, Dark Souls is not a power fantasy. You die. 
Like, <laughs> constantly. It is really super hard, and it's supposed to be really super hard. And they're like, well, I mean, everyone wants to win. Everyone's like, but th that's not a type of fun. I mean, that is a type of fun, but that's not the type of fun you want. So, uh, again, one-on-one, -on -one, I ran a two-person baby Cthulhu game for them. Like, you learn the truth, now you die. Like, and they loved it. It's like the favorite RPG they ever played. And I'm like... And I'm like, yeah, guys, the point of the game is not to win. Like, the point of the game is what you say the point of the game is. And now, and then they just start talking about video games all the time now. So, like, a kid loved Call of Duty. Now he hates it. Like, oh, total lack of agency. I'm, ti I'm tired of running down brown hallways and shooting brown people. It's awful. It's the same thing every year. Uh, and, now, and now he's like, uh, yeah, and so now he's, like, doing, you know, he's getting into Telltale games and, like, stuff like, like and, you know, those are narrative examples. So, like, uh, you can use video games to uh, give reference to what you're teaching about games or the skills you're teaching about games, and then vice versa. You can use tabletop games to teach principles so that the kids aren't just, like, passively absorbing this medium. Yeah. So you you just mentioned, like, oh, uh, no, we'll get, we'll get them next. Yeah. No, you're fine. So you literally just mentioned like talking to your principal and teaching your principal more. Um, do you have any like train the trainer resources? Because I would love to like get my coworkers into the idea of coaching their core members into using games or. I don't, and I'm sorry. The way I convince my principal is that I have a huge board game library. You don't have to buy anything, <laughs> and that's how I did it. Uh, I'll pay for it. Like um, there is some research, so like. One thing I would really like to do one day is uh, extra credits to the best and most succinct example of it is uh, achievement-based rating. It's a little like standards-based, but like when you examine, uh, when you examine, and I actually made my kids do this, my upper-level kids, when you examine grading in high school from a behaviorist and game perspective, it's a terrible idea. The only reinforcement structures are punishment and negative reinforcement. And so uh, extra credits and a number of game theorists, and, and some after the educators have done this, is they have an achievement system. Everyone starts off with zero points. The points you get doing any activity related to the content in any order you wish to do it you have D level achievements and C level achievements, and then you just work. On, and they did, and the people I've seen don't even call it the letter grades anymore. It's just like I'm an eagle now, like you know, uh, and it's like achievement unlock kind of stuff. And it's purely positive as Skinner box reinforcement, which is both more humane, but. Uh, so I have found a ton of resources on that. There's a lot of resource on that. But the problem with implementing it is that it's so labor intensive on the front end. You have to have your semester planned front to back before the kids walk in and sit down at a desk. Whereas most of my lesson planning sits, is sitting down with a post-it note 15 minutes before they come in and figuring out what the hell I'm going to do that day. Uh, because I have six preps. Like, yeah. So it, it's so labor intensive. But... Uh, so I'm sorry. That's okay. We've had someone waiting. Sorry. Um, so I'm planning on working more with children that have developmental disabilities. Definitely have the cognition to play these games, but are also working on verbal skills. Mm -hmm. So are there games that could be teaching social skills, but might be a little lighter on the verbal side? Uh, yeah. One suggestion. I use Octech. Um, I, I teach at the college level and I use it when I talk about vocalics. Mm -hmm. And UpTech, you have different teams 
and you have a card and you're trying to get your team to construct something out of the blocks, but all you can do is ug and oog and use nonverbal communication, and that's what some of the kids have. If so they do it wrong, you get an inflatable mallet, and you get to bump them. <laughs> Which you can, you can use or not. College students love to bump their friends, so it's a good time. Right. But if they want to get them to communicate and use, you know, they don't have the language, but they do have the they have that reflection, they have break, they have pitch, they have body movement. They just keep it. of tech. Of tech. UGG. Uh, there's a deception card game called Meow Not Meow. And like you pull a card and it either has a cat on it and it says real big meow or anything but a cat and not meow. And so you look at your card and the whole game is lying to people by only saying those words. Like you just have to look everyone in the eye and be like meow. <laughs> and like try and bluff them out. Uh, and then there's like a point mechanic for that. And uh, so that's pretty good. Um, I'm sorry we're out of time. Uh, I will talk to you after the panel, I happily, but thank you all for coming. I'm sorry I talked so much to my other panelists. Yeah, please give us your tickets if you've yet to do so. We would appreciate doing this again. And get our cards. Yes. Uh, thank you very much.